Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come today, Lord, we pray that um, that you would uh, be able to speak to us past my limited ability and capacity to do so, Lord. I pray that um, everything that's expressed, everything that's heard, God, would be um, experienced through the lens of what you want us to encounter. God, I pray that you would just um, help us each to examine ourselves, uh, not in light of uh, my standards or, or anybody else's standards, but in light of you and the grace that you've given us. Help us, Lord, to, to walk in that power. Help us to understand your presence and your place in our lives and the extraordinary work you've called us to, to be the, the salt and the light to a world that desperately needs to experience that. God, we, uh, we are grateful to you for your goodness to us and just for being who you are. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Over the last couple of weeks, our country has seen uh, quite a bit of upheaval. Um, coming out of um, at least the first phase of our experience with the coronavirus, um, we have been tired, we've been frustrated, we've been driven by a number of things, and then uh, you had the, the death, the murder of George Floyd, um, and that lit uh, a powder keg, essentially, um, to a lot of the unrest and um, hurt that was already experienced in our country by just about everybody. And as I've thought about those events and thought about what has transpired, I've, I've asked myself many times, what do I say? Do I say anything? Um, as a pastor, I believe it's my task to address such situations, such circumstances. I believe it is part of my calling. I believe it is part of the gospel message um, in terms of how we treat others, understand others, relate to others, and so forth. But at the same time, I don't want myself to get in the way. I don't want it to be about me. I don't want it to be about my opinions and my positions and my understandings and my perspective. My calling as a pastor is to preach the word and what God has proclaimed and what God has called us to. Um, and so I, I've, I've struggled over this. I've prayed over this. I've, I've thought about this and what I should say, what I should do, what I shouldn't say, what I shouldn't do, all of those sorts of things. Um, and, and as I considered it, I, I felt my heart, I felt my spirit led to uh, a passage that I believe we've looked at before, but I think it's one we need to revisit. Um, if you don't need to hear it, I do. And so um, if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 10, we're going to be looking at, um, uh, it's a well-known story. It's a story most kids hear growing up. It's a story... Uh, that uh, I think we've all heard in one form or another. Um, 
but I think it's a story that's often misunderstood in terms of its purpose, in terms of what exactly Jesus is trying to express and communicate um, to his audience. It is the parable that's generally referred to as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And as you, you think about this parable, generally what comes to mind um, is generally a, some sort of concept, some sort of idea of we need to help others. We need to do good to others. That we need to be like the Good Samaritan. And while there is certainly a sense in which that's true, there is certainly a sense in which this is a call, this is an encouragement to be good to others, to respond to others, to react to others. I don't think that's the primary purpose. When you deal with parables, when you look at Jesus' parables, the stories that Jesus tells, the very first question you have to ask before you start dealing with it, before you start interpreting it, is the question of to whom is he speaking? Who is his audience? Who is he telling this story to? Because that determines the content of the story, why he chooses the elements he chooses, why he picks the things that he, he, he picks in terms of what he includes and what he doesn't include. And when you look here in verse 25, we're told who the audience of the story is. It says, Then an expert in the law stood up to him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal salvation? Jesus said, What is written in the law? He asked him, how do you read it? And he, that is the lawyer, the, the teacher of the law, replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And then Jesus proceeds to tell the story, as we'll cover here in just a moment. So who is his audience here? Who does the text tell us his audience is? My translation says an expert in the law. Your translation may say a lawyer. That's often the way this is rendered. Who is this individual? What, what group does he belong to? What is his belief? What is his perspective? This individual is part of a group that's called elsewhere in the Gospels, the scribes. Okay. You've heard the scribes and the Pharisees. You know, sometimes they're they're put together that way. This is he's one of those people. Now, who are the scribes? What are they? They were a wealthy, well-educated class. And their job, their task in their society, in their culture, was to write and copy and to interpret sacred texts, especially the legal codes. That is the law, the first five books of the Bible. Books of Moses, as we would call them. That was their job. They were, they were, this is what they spent all their time doing. Much like our lawyers today spend a lot of time just studying the, the nuances and all the laws and the loopholes and all those other things. That's what these, these guys did. That's, that was their job. And so they had a lot of influence in how the law was interpreted and implied and understood in their culture. Now, what we also know about them is that they had a rivalry, sometimes friendly, sometimes not so friendly, with the priest, with the Levites. 
Okay, because what? The priest also interpreted and applied the law, right? They, they also proclaimed and said, this is what God expects of you, and this is what God requires of you. And so you had these two groups in this culture who both had kind of the same task, but came at it a little bit differently, and both are wanting to be heard. They're both wanting to be the expert, okay? You know, you speak about the law, I speak about the law. Who are they going to listen to? And so they had this rivalry with the priest. The other thing we know about them is that of all the groups in Israel, and there were a lot of different groups in Israel, but of all the groups in Israel, this particular group played a significant role in history and in the present context of Jesus' experience in attacking in uh, in denigrating and playing down the Samaritans. Okay, They were the ones, they were the group that came to the people and said, those Samaritans, you can't trust them. Let me tell you about the Samaritans. And they created the story of how they're half-breeds and how they're this and they're that. And they, they were the ones who basically defined and classified the Samaritans as less than people. Okay, So that's who they were. So that's the person who's asking this question. He stands up. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's what? He's looking for an answer. How does the law apply? And Jesus asked him, what does the law say? You would know. And he answers correctly. He gives the answer that Jesus gives elsewhere. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He knows the law. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 there. He's bringing those two together, just as Jesus does in many other contexts. Okay? He knows his stuff. He understands the word of God. And Jesus says, good job. You answered exactly the way you're supposed to, exactly what, how you needed to answer. So do it. And then what's it say? Seeking to justify himself. He said, who's my neighbor? Who exactly do I have to love to qualify for fulfilling this commandment? How would you answer that question, Jesus? And Jesus could have given him a straightforward answer. You know, maybe he said, it's everybody. Love everybody. Because when you say, Love everybody. And what? You've answered the question, right? That's the answer. But you've done what? You've also left open the door for this guy to respond, I do that. Everybody that matters, at least. Okay. I love everybody. Now, the Samaritans over there, they're not really bodies. So I don't have to love them. They're not part of the everybody. But Jesus doesn't go that route. Instead, he tells a story, and the story goes to the heart of this person's prejudices, of this person's mindset and perspective. And so I want us to hear it and then, and then break it down just a little bit to answer for ourselves. Who is my neighbor? And what is Jesus exactly calling us to here in response to this? So continuing on in verse 30, 
Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to go be going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place where he saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. When he went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine, then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. When, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Jesus said, go and do the same. Now, I believe in telling the story that Jesus is essentially saying, he's essentially arguing, there's three neighbors here. There's three individuals who play the role of neighbor in this story to his audience, to the individual. The one is obvious, and we'll finish with him. The, one who, the person who's beaten is obviously the neighbor because he's the one who's treated, he's the one who's responded to. But I think there's two other neighbors in this story as well. And, and the first of these is the Samaritan. Remember what I said about the scribes, how they viewed the Samaritan. Of all the groups, of all the individuals in Israel who had an understanding, a perspective, a a take on the Samaritan. The scribes held it the strongest. They were the ones who had forcefully argued for it. They were the ones who had made the case against the Samaritans. And so, putting yourself in the shoes of this scribe as he's hearing the story. A man's hurt. He's wounded. Okay, The priests come by. Another priest comes by. And then a third person's coming by, which was basically the formula of the story. It's how rabbis would tell these sorts of stories. There'd be two individuals, and then a third person, and the third person was always the answer. Now, if you're a scribe, who's the last person you expect to be the answer to the situation? Who's the last person you expect to be the one who's offering aid, to be the one who's offering assistance, to be the example of what you're supposed to be like? It's a Samaritan. That's the last person he would expect. And, and you can see that kind of play out here because when Jesus asked, who proved to be a neighbor to this man, how does he answer? He doesn't say the Samaritan, does he? He says the one who showed him mercy. In other words, he, he's not even willing to say the Samaritan was a good guy here. He's not even willing to express that. So what is Jesus getting at here? What is, how does this apply to us? Well, I believe what Jesus is trying to say here is your neighbor is the person you least want it to be. Firstly, your neighbor is the person you least want it to be. When you think about loving your neighbor, okay, it's easy to love certain people. There are some people that are just lovable. Okay, You see them, you encounter them, and you're like, all right. Good to see you. I'm so glad you entered this time and this space, whatever. It's just good to see you. And then there are some people 
that it's not quite so easy to love, aren't there? And I don't know who that is for you. It could be somebody I don't even know. It could be an individual that's in your life that's always just kind of been there going, you know, the bear pokers, the ones who just know exactly what to say at just the right moment to get your goat, to, to, to make you angry. Maybe it's somebody on a, on a bigger scale. If you're a conservative Republican, if I throw out the name Nancy Pelosi, guess what, y'all? She's your neighbor. Okay? If you're a more liberal Democrat, I throw out the name Donald Trump. He's your neighbor. People who are part of this this movement, the looters. They're your neighbors. The demonstrators, they're your neighbors. The person you least want it to be is your neighbor. And that's the point. As Jesus is telling this story and the, the scribe is hearing it, he He no doubt expected that the next person was going to be a scribe, because scribes are the good guys. And then Jesus says, and then a Samaritan came by, and his heart sank. And the sorrow or the anger or the whatever that that grew out of him at that moment is the point of the message. You've sought to justify yourself by saying, who's my neighbor? I'm telling you, your neighbor is that person you despise. And if you despise them, then guess what? You're not loving your neighbor. In this time, when there's so much upheaval and so much difficulty and so much anger, believers called to love our neighbors. To love those people who kneel during the national anthem. To love those people who denigrate institutions and entities and individuals that we love and care for. To love those people whose argument we think is nonsense or foolish. The second neighbor here are the priests. Why does Jesus pick priests as the ones who walk around the guy who's hurt? Because the scribe is a rival with the priest. They're the group, they're the entity that he doesn't hate. He may even have kind of a healthy respect for in some respect, in some sense, but they're the group that he's going to say they're not quite up to snuff. They're not quite up to my level. In our situation, it might be somebody from a different denomination. Okay. Well, those Methodists, you know, they're 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 pretty good folk, but they're not quite up to Baptist level. You 
might be something along those lines. What's Jesus doing here? He's playing off the the pride of the scribe. Because no doubt, as he said, a priest came by and a Levite came by. That scribe's listening to that and said, yep, that's kind of what you'd expect from them. See somebody in the dirt, somebody over there hurting, and they're walking by on the, on the other side. Yeah. I mean, what do you expect from priests? That's what they do. And what he's getting at the heart of here is self-righteousness. Our pride in who we are. Because as you, you deal with loving your neighbor, it all begins in the heart. It all begins with our mindset. And if you're functioning, if I'm functioning from a mindset that says, I'm better than that person, or I can do better than that person, then you have already lost the battle. You're incapable of loving others if your heart is driven by the pride of how well you love others. You understand what I'm saying? If, if you're of the mindset, I'm really good at loving others, especially compared to those people, then you're going to fail at actually loving others. Because what? You're going to satisfy, you're going to be satisfied, you're going to stop at just the level you need to stop at to be better than the person who's you're competing with. And that's not love. Love isn't doing just enough. Love is going overboard. Love is, is as we'll see here in a minute, it's sacrificial. And one of the things we as Christians need to get into our minds, need to get into our head, one of the things I struggle with on a constant, daily basis is that I'm not good enough. See, I grew up in a church. I accepted Christ at a fairly young age, around the age of eight. And I've never really caused my parents a, a day of worry in terms of my behavior. I didn't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. Okay. I, I, I was a good kid. I mean, I wasn't a model student in high school. I was, I'll be honest, I was lazy. But man, they didn't have to worry about where I was or what I was doing or anything like that. I was straight and narrow. And as I think about that, I, I think my parents were lucky they had me. Those are the thoughts that creep up in my head. Because I look at how other kids treated their parents. I look at how, you know, some of my friends that I'm still kind of in contact with, I look at the lives they're leading, I'm like, I'm better than them. And that's what we've turned Christianity into. Do good, don't do bad. We've turned it into this, I can please God with my good behavior. 
What does Scripture say about that? Your best deeds are like filthy rags compared to the holiness of God. But we see these rioters, we see these people doing these things, and we put ourselves, well, I would never do that. And we create a sense of moral superiority. We create a sense of, I am all that I'm supposed to be. And the moment we do that, we cease to love. I'm not saying you don't call people out for bad behavior. I'm not saying you don't hold people accountable. I'm not saying there's no right and wrong. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is the mindset that we approach that issue from matters. It makes a difference. My favorite definition of evangelism is that evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. Why? Because I remember that even after the fact that I found the food, I'm still a beggar. I'm still in need of God's salvation. My heart even as it's being transformed and growing and learning and maturing and becoming more Christ-like, is still turned toward my purposes. God has called us to one thing. One thing. Humble yourself. In Scripture, every other element of our faith, our obedience, our faith, salvation, everything is all on God's shoulders. He does all of that. The only thing He requires of us, the only thing that's on our shoulders is humility. Humble yourself before the Lord. You do that. Why? Because until we do that... None of the other stuff is going to take. I can't do anything to make God love me more. I can't. I can't love my neighbor the way Jesus tells me to here. I am not capable of it. I see people disrespecting things that I honor, and I get ticked. And I get angry. And I want them to, quote, get theirs. That's where my heart is. And I fail to realize that they're a person created in God's image, just like I am. And I fail to realize that my sin put Jesus up on that cross just as much as their sin.
instead of seeing everybody as the priest in our life, who we expect them because they're just not as capable, we need to see others as we see ourselves. Love others as you love yourself. I don't, I don't, I don't love myself. No. What does that even mean? You love yourself. Look at how you view yourself. Look at how I view myself. I'm not quite as bad as that person over there. I would never do that. All of humanity is lost and without hope. And when we turn our interactions with God into, I can do good if I just do good, then what are we doing? We're either feeding despair or we're feeding pride. If you turn your salvation, if you turn your Christianity into doing good, not doing bad, you're either feeding despair or pride because you're either saying, there's no way I can do that, I give up, which is despair. Why should I even try to be a believer? Or you're saying, I'm doing pretty good here, which is arrogance. Christianity says, I can't do any of it. But I don't despair in that. I take hope and I take joy and I take peace and I take happiness into the fact that through Christ, I'm more than a conqueror. Through Christ, I am capable of overcoming. Through Christ, I can love the, quote, unlovable. Annika quoted earlier. Annika? Sorry. Annika quoted earlier, for freedom we've been set free. Let that resonate in your heart and soul. You haven't been saved to be more constrained. You've been saved to be free, to live in victory. How do you do that? By walking in Christ, a relationship with him. Yesterday, Will and I were talking about something. My wife had asked him to do something, and and before he even knew what it was, he was exactly he was supposed to do. I told him what he was gonna, what she was gonna ask him to do. And he asked me, "How did you know that's what she would want?" We've been married for thirty-one years, been together for thirty-three. I know my wife, not perfectly. She still surprises me every once in a while, but I know her. It's not a question of do's and don'ts. It's a question of relationship. And that's what it is with God. It's not a question of do's and don'ts. It's a question of, I know my God. Why? Because I'm walking with him. I'm surrendering to him. He's empowering me. He's speaking through me. He's speaking to me. He's encouraging me. He's correcting me. I'm in a relationship. That's what Christianity is. We say all the time the cliche, Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. We say that. And then we go out and live as if it's a religion. Failing to connect with the one who made us and changed us and called us. And so, loving our neighbor starts with dealing with the pride with our hearts. But ultimately, it's our actions that reveal our hearts. What we do, what we say. And, and and take note here, 
the whole story is six verses, 30 through 35. Okay? Of the story, three of those verses, over half the story is the care the Samaritan gave to the person who's hurt. Why go into all that detail? Why talk about the fact that he bandaged him and used oil and used wine and gave two denarii, two, two days' wages? I don't know what you make in a day, but think about that. Two days' wages to take care of this guy. After spending a day yourself caring for his wounds. And then saying, when I come back, if there's any outstanding bill beyond that, I'll pay that too. Why spend so much time, so much of your story on the care that was given? Because Jesus wants us to understand not just who our neighbor is, but what our love should look like. And our love must look like sacrifice. It has to express, it has to communicate compassion and empathy. And if there's one thing that's missing right now in all of this national dialogue and all of these things that's going on, it's compassion and empathy. We all want to protect our viewpoint. Someone points out something. Okay, The struggle that African Americans deal with just because of their color. And we hear that. And our reply is what? Yes, but... How many times do you find yourself saying that? How many times do I find myself saying that? Yes, but... And what we're doing there is we're not really sympathizing or empathizing with the person. We're acting like we're hearing them but then we're proceeding to give all sorts of reasons why we don't really want to hear them. Why we won't identify with them. Why we won't hear what's going on. And you may not think of compassion and empathy as a sacrifice, but it really is. It's a sacrifice of your own positions a lot of times. It's a sacrifice of your legitimacy sometimes. Sometimes you have to say, it doesn't matter how I look at this moment. I'm going to identify with that person. It doesn't matter what people think of me at this moment. I'm going to show compassion to that person. I'm going to work with those people that I really don't like. Why? To show them the love of Christ. Kayla read from Galatians earlier. I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Those are powerful words. That's the heart of Christianity. I have been crucified. I was killed. I died to myself. 
And it's no longer me that lives. It's Christ who lives in me. It's not just about knowing the right answer. The scribe, both times he was asked a question in this exchange, he got the answer right. You notice that? Jesus asked him a question at the beginning. Jesus asked him a question at the end. Both times he got the answer right. The whole point is not about having, quote, the right answer. The whole point is living a life that expresses that answer. And again, it's not our power. It's not my decision saying, I'm going to try better. I'm going to do what's good. I'm going to try harder. It's what? I'm going to let Christ live through me. His viewpoint is going to become my viewpoint. His mindset is going to become my mindset. Not by any effort of mine, but by me humbling myself, releasing, surrendering to what he wants to do. Letting go so that he is the one that people see, not me. How do I do that, Pastor? That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourself. Admit you can't do it. Surrender to his way, his path, his guidance, his presence. See striving and know that he is God. It's not our struggle. It's not our ability or power. It's Him living through us. Get to know Him better. Walk with Him. Meditate on Him. Think about Him. Listen to Him in His Word. If over the last 31 years, I'd only spent one day and a few minutes, maybe every other day, thinking about my wife and talking to my wife. I wouldn't know her, would I? Oh, I'd be familiar with a lot of things about her. But the one day and a couple, maybe a few minutes of every other day would not really create a relationship. And yet that's how we treat our relationship with God. We'll give them Sunday, maybe an hour on Wednesday, 15, 20 minutes every other day when we pray or whatever. And then we wonder why we don't know what he wants us to do and who he wants us to be and why we can't be it. We have to give him all that we are when we're at work when we're at play, it has to be about him. Well, how can I do that and do my job? Come on, guys. You can do your, you can do your job and think about the person you love. 
your wife, or your spouse, your husband. You can go about your daily life and think, oh, I really like them. They put a smile on your face. You can do that with a person. You can do that with Christ. Let him pervade every part of your life. Let him be the center of your thoughts. And you'll begin to experience the capacity to do things you never thought were possible before. You'll begin to love those who right now you consider unlovable. Only God can do it. Surrender to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we come and and we admit, I admit, my inability to be who you called me to be. I look at how people act and what people do, and it's so easy for me to say or to think, well, at least I'm not like that. God, let me be driven by a desire to be like you. Help me, help each of us to be driven by one purpose, to know you and to make you known. Help us, Lord, to love our neighbor and to understand who our neighbor is and to understand what that love looks like. We praise you, Lord, for a grace that is incomprehensible. We praise you, Lord, for a salvation that's undeserved. We praise you, Lord, just for being who you are. Thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.